Section thirty one of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter twenty The Law of Property. Part two. Section one hundred and sixty. Securities. A security is an encumbrance the purpose of which is to ensure or facilitate the fulfilment or enjoyment of some other right, usually, though not necessarily, a debt, vested in the same person. Such securities are of two kinds, which may be distinguished as mortgages and liens, if we use the latter term in its widest permissible sense. In considering the nature of this distinction, we must first notice a plausible but erroneous explanation. A mortgage, it is sometimes said, is a security created by the transfer of the debtor's property to the creditor, while a lien is merely an encumbrance of some sort created in favor of the creditor over property which remains vested in the debtor. A mortgagee is the owner of the property, while a pledgee or other lienee is merely an encumbrancer of it. This, however, is not a strictly accurate account of the matter, though it is true in the great majority of cases. A mortgage may be created by way of encumbrance, no less than by way of transfer, and a mortgagee does not necessarily become the owner of the property mortgaged. A lease, for example, is commonly mortgaged, not by the assignment of it, but by the grant of a sublease to the creditor, so that the mortgagee becomes not the owner of a lease, but an encumbrancer of it. Similarly, freehold land may be mortgaged by the grant to the mortgagee of a long term of years. Inasmuch, therefore, as a mortgage is not necessarily the transfer of the property to the creditor, what is its essential characteristic? The question is one of considerable difficulty, but the true solution is apparently this. A lien is a right which is in its own nature a security for a debt and nothing more. For example, a right to retain possession of a chattel until payment, a right to distrain for rent, or a right to receive payment out of a certain fund. A mortgage, on the contrary, is a right which is in its own nature an independent or principal right, and not a mere security for another right, but which is artificially cut down and limited, so that it may serve in the particular case as a security and nothing more. For example, the fee simple of land, a lease of land for a term of years, or the ownership of a chattel. The right of the lienee is vested in him absolutely, and not merely by way of security, for it is itself nothing more than a security. The right of a mortgagee, on the contrary, is vested in him conditionally, and by way of security only, for it is, in itself, something more than a mere security. A lien cannot survive the debt secured. It ceases and determines ipso jure on the execution of the debt. It is merely the shadow, so to speak, cast by the debt upon the property of the debtor, but the right vested in a mortgagee has an independent existence. It will, or may, remain outstanding in the mortgagee even after the extinction of the debt. When thus left outstanding, it must be retransferred or surrendered to the mortgagor, and the right of the mortgagor to this reassignment or surrender is called his right or equity of redemption. The existence of such an equity of redemption is therefore the test of a mortgage. In liens there is no such right, for there is nothing to redeem. The creditor owns no right which he can be bound to give back or surrender to his debtor. For his right of security has come to its natural and necessary termination with the termination of the right secured. 
Mortgages are created either by the transfer of the debtor's right to the creditor, or by the encumbrance of it in his favor. The first of these methods is by far the more usual and important. Moreover, it is peculiar to mortgages, for liens can be created only by way of encumbrance. Whenever a debtor transfers his right to the creditor by way of security, the result is necessarily a mortgage, for there can be no connection between the duration of the debt so secured and the natural duration of the right so transferred. The right transferred may survive the debt, and the debtor therefore retains the right of redemption, which is the infallible test of a mortgage. When, on the other hand, a debtor encumbers his right in favor of the creditor, the security so created is either a mortgage or a lien according to circumstances. It is a mortgage if the encumbrance so created is independent of the debt secured in respect of its natural duration. For example, a term of years or permanent servitude. It is a lien if the encumbrance is in respect of its natural duration dependent on and coincident with the debt secured. For example, a pledge, a vendor's lien, a landlord's right of distress, or an equitable charge on a fund. Speaking generally, any alienable and valuable right whatever may be the subject matter of a mortgage. Whatever can be transferred can be transferred by way of mortgage. Whatever can be encumbered can be encumbered by way of mortgage. Whether I own land or chattels or debts or shares or patents or copyrights or leases or servitudes or equitable interests in trust funds or the benefit of a contract, I may so deal with them as to constitute a valid mortgage security. Even a mortgage itself may be transferred by the mortgagee to some creditor of his own by way of mortgage, such a mortgage of a mortgage being known as a sub-mortgage. In a mortgage by way of transfer, the debtor, though he assigns the property to his creditor, remains nonetheless the beneficial or equitable owner of it himself. A mortgagor, by virtue of his equity of redemption, has more than a mere personal right against the mortgagee to the reconveyance of the property. He is already the beneficial owner of it. This double ownership of mortgaged property is merely a special form of trust. The mortgagee holds in trust for the mortgagor and has himself no beneficial interest, save so far as is required for the purpose of an effective security. On the payment or extinction of the debt, the mortgagee becomes a mere trustee and nothing more. The ownership remains vested in him, but is now bare of any vestige of beneficial interest. A mortgage, therefore, has a double aspect and nature. Viewed in respect of the nudum dominium vested in the mortgagee, it is a transfer of the property. Viewed in respect of the beneficial ownership which remains vested in the mortgagor, it is merely an encumbrance of it. The prominence of mortgage as the most important form of security is a peculiarity of English law. In Roman law, and in the modern continental system based upon it, the place assumed by mortgages in our system is taken by the lien, hypotheca, in its various forms. The Roman mortgage, fiducia, fell wholly out of use before the time of Justinian, having been displaced by the superior simplicity and convenience of the hypotheca. And in this respect, modern continental law has followed the Roman. There can be no doubt that a similar substitution of the lien for the mortgage would immensely simplify and improve the law of England. The complexity and difficulty of the English law of security due entirely to the adoption of the system of mortgages, must be a source of amazement to a French and German lawyer. Whatever can be done by way of mortgage in securing debt can be done equally well by way of lien, and the lien avoids all that extraordinary disturbance and complication of legal relations which is essentially involved in the mortgage. 
the best type of security is that which combines the most efficient protection of the creditor with the least interference with the rights of the debtor and in this latter respect the mortgage falls far short of the ideal the true form of security is a lien leaving the full legal and equitable ownership in the debtor but vesting in the creditor such rights and powers as of sale possession and so forth as are required according to the nature of the subject matter to give the creditor sufficient protection and lapsing ipso jure with the discharge of the debt secured liens are of various kinds none of which present any difficulty or require any special consideration one possessory liens consisting in the right to retain possession of chattels or other property of the debtor a power of sale may or may not be combined with this right of possession examples are pledges of chattels and the liens of innkeepers solicitors and vendors of goods two rights of distress or seizure consisting in the right to take possession of the property of the debtor with or without a power of sale examples are the right of distress for rent and the right of the occupier of land to distrain cattle trespassing on it three powers of sale this is a form of security seldom found in isolation for it is usually incidental to the right of possession conferred by one or other of the two preceding forms of lien there is no reason however why it should not in itself form an effective security four powers of forfeiture consisting in a power vested in the creditor of destroying in his own interest some adverse right vested in the debtor examples are a landlord's right of re-entry upon his tenant and a vendor's right of forfeiting the deposit paid by the purchaser five charges consisting of the right of a creditor to receive payment out of some specific fund or out of the proceeds of the realization of specific property the fund or property is said to be charged with the debt which is thus payable out of it section 161 modes of acquisition possession having considered the various forms which proprietary rights in rem assume we proceed to examine the modes of their acquisition an attempt to give a complete list of these titles would here serve no useful purpose and we shall confine our attention to four of them which are of primary importance these are the following possession prescription agreement and inheritance the possession of a material object is a title to the ownership of it the de facto relation between the person and the thing becomes the de jure relation along with it he who claims a chattel or a piece of land as his and makes good his claim in fact by way of possession makes it good in law also by way of ownership there is however an important distinction to be drawn for the thing so possessed may or may not already belong to some other person if when possession of it is taken by the claimant it is as yet the property of no one res nilius as the romans said the possessor acquires a good title against the world the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air belong by an absolute title to him who first succeeds in obtaining possession of them this mode of acquisition is known in roman law as occupatio on the other hand the thing of which possession is taken may already be the property of someone else in this case the title acquired by possession is good indeed against all third persons but is of no validity at all against the true owner possession even when consciously wrongful is allowed as a title of right against all persons who cannot show a better because a prior title in themselves save with respect to the rights of the original proprietor my rights to the watch in my pocket are much the same whether i bought it honestly or found it or abstracted it from the pocket of someone else if it is stolen from me the law will help me to the recovery of it i can effectually sell it lend it give it away or bequeath it 
and it will go on my death intestate to my next of kin whoever acquires it from me however acquires in general nothing save my limited and imperfect title to it and holds it as i do subject to the superior claims of the original owner a thing owned by one man and thus adversely possessed by another has in truth two owners the ownership of the one is absolute and perfect while that of the other is relative and imperfect and is often called by reason of its origin and possession possessory ownership if a possessory owner is wrongfully deprived of the thing by a person other than the true owner he can recover it for the defendant cannot set up as a defense his own possessory title since it is later than and consequently inferior to the possessory title of the plaintiff nor can he set up as a defense the title of the true owner the jes tertiae as it is called the plaintiff has a better because an earlier title than the defendant and it is irrelevant that the title of some other person not a party to the suit is better still the expediency of this doctrine of possessory ownership is clear were it not for such a rule force and fraud would be left to determine all disputes as to possession between persons of whom neither could show an unimpeachable title to the thing as the true owner of it section 162 prescription prescription may be defined as the effect of lapse of time in creating and destroying rights it is the operation of time as a vestitive fact it is of two kinds namely one positive or acquisitive prescription and two negative or extinctive prescription the former is the creation of a right the latter is the destruction of one by the lapse of time an example of the former is the acquisition of a right-of-way by the de facto use of it for twenty years an instance of the latter is the destruction of the right to sue for a debt after six years from the time at which it first became payable lapse of time therefore has two opposite effects in positive prescription it is a title of right but in negative prescription it is a divestitive fact whether it shall operate in the one way or the other depends on whether it is or is not accompanied by possession positive prescription is the investitive operation of lapse of time with possession while negative prescription is the divestitive operation of lapse of time without possession long possession creates rights and long want of possession destroys them if i possess an easement for twenty years without owning it i begin at the end of that period to own as well as to possess it conversely if i own land for twelve years without possessing it i cease on the termination of that period either to own or to possess it in both forms of prescription fact and right possession and ownership tend to coincidence ex facto orator just if the root of fact is destroyed the right growing out of it withers and dies in course of time if the fact is present the right will in the fullness of time proceed from it in many cases the two forms of prescription coincide the property which one person loses through long dispossession is often at the same time acquired by someone else through long possession yet this is not always so and it is necessary in many instances to know whether legal effect is given to long possession in which case the prescription is positive or too long want of possession in which case the prescription is negative i may for example be continuously out of possession of my land for twelve years without any other single person having continuously held possession of it for that length of time it may have been in the hands of a series of trespassers against me and against each other in this case if the legally recognized form of prescription is positive it is inoperative and i retain my ownership 
but if the law recognizes negative prescription instead of positive, as in this case our own system does, my title will be extinguished. Who in such circumstances will acquire the right which I thus lose depends not on the law of prescription, but on the rules as to the acquisition of things which have no owner. The doctrine that prior possession is a good title against all but the true owner will confer on the first of a series of adverse possessors a good title against all the world, so soon as the title of the true owner has been extinguished by negative prescription. The rational basis of prescription is to be found in the presumption of the coincidence of possession and ownership, of fact and of right. Owners are usually possessors, and possessors are usually owners. Fact and right are normally coincident. Therefore, the former is evidence of the latter. That a thing is possessed de facto is evidence that it is owned de jure. That it is not possessed raises a presumption that it is not owned either. Want of possession is evidence of want of title. The longer the possession or want of possession has continued, the greater is its evidential value. That I have occupied land for a day raises a very slight presumption that I am the owner of it. But if I continue to occupy it for twenty years, the presumption becomes indefinitely stronger. If I have a claim of debt against a man, unfulfilled and unenforced, the lapse of six months may have but little weight as evidence that my claim is unfounded, or that it has already been satisfied, but the lapse of ten years may amount to ample proof of this. If, therefore, I am in possession of anything in which I claim a right, I have evidence of my right which differs from all other evidence, inasmuch as it grows stronger instead of weaker with the lapse of years. The tooth of time may eat away all other proofs of title. Documents are lost memory fails, witnesses die. But as these become of no avail, an efficient substitute is in the same measure provided by the probative force of long possession. So also with long want of possession as evidence of want of title. As the years pass, the evidence in favor of the title fades, while the presumption against it grows ever stronger. Here, then, we have the chief foundation of the law of prescription. For in this case, as in so many others, the law has deemed it expedient to confer upon certain species of evidence conclusive force. It has established a conclusive presumption in favor of the rightfulness of long possession, and against the validity of claims which are vitiated by long want of possession. Lapse of time is recognized as creative and destructive of rights, instead of merely as evidence for and against their existence. In substance, Though not always in form, prescription has been advanced from the law of evidence to a place in the substantive law. The conclusive presumption on which prescription is thus founded falls, like all other conclusive presumptions, more or less wide of the truth. Yet in the long run, if used with due safeguards, it is the instrument of justice. It is not true as a matter of fact that a claim unenforced for six years is always unfounded, but it may be wise for the law to act as if it were true. For the effect of thus exaggerating the evidential lapse of time is to prevent the persons concerned from permitting such delays as would render their claims in reality doubtful. In order to avoid the difficulty and error that necessarily result from the lapse of time, the presumption of the coincidence of fact and right is rightly accepted as final after a certain number of years. Whoever wishes to dispute this presumption must do so within that period. Otherwise his right, if he has one, will be forfeited as a penalty for his neglect. Vigilantibus non dormientibus jurisem veniant. Prescription is not limited to rights in rem. It is found within the sphere of obligations as well as within that of property. Positive prescription, however, is possible only in the case of rights which admit of possession, that is to say, continuing exercise and enjoyment. Most rights of this nature are rights in rem. 
rights in personam are commonly extinguished by their exercise and therefore cannot be possessed or acquired by prescription and even in that minority of cases in which such rights do admit of possession and in which positive prescription is therefore theoretically possible modern law at least has seen no occasion for allowing it this form of prescription therefore is peculiar to the law of property negative prescription on the other hand is common to the law of property and to that of obligations most obligations are destroyed by the lapse of time for since the ownership of them cannot be accompanied by the possession of them there is nothing to preserve them from the destructive influence of delay in their enforcement negative prescription is of two kinds which may be distinguished as perfect and imperfect the latter is commonly called the limitation of actions the former being then distinguished as prescription in a narrow and specific sense perfect prescription is the destruction of the principal right itself while imperfect prescription is merely the destruction of the accessory right of action the principal right remaining in existence in other words in the one case the right is wholly destroyed but in the other it is merely reduced from a perfect and enforceable right to one which is imperfect and unenforceable an example of perfect prescription is the destruction of the ownership of land through dispossession for twelve years the owner of land who has been out of possession for that period does not merely lose his right of action for the recovery of it but also loses the right of ownership itself an example of imperfect prescription on the other hand is the case of an owner of chattel who has been out of possession of it for six years he loses his right of action for the recovery of it but he remains the owner of it none the less his ownership is reduced from a perfect to an imperfect right but it still subsists similarly a creditor loses in six years his right of action for the debt but the debt itself is not extinguished and continues to be due and owing section one hundred and sixty three agreement we have already considered the general theory of agreement as a title of right it will be remembered that we use the term to include not merely contracts but all other bilateral acts in the law that is to say all expressions of the consenting wills of two or more persons directed to an alteration of their legal relations agreement in this wide sense is no less important in the law of property than in that of obligations as a title of proprietary rights in rem agreement is of two kinds namely assignment and grant by the former existing rights are transferred from one owner to another by the latter new rights are created by way of encumbrance upon the existing rights of the grantor the grant of a lease of land is the creation by agreement between the grantor and grantee of a leasehold vested in the latter and encumbering the freehold vested in the former the assignment of a lease on the other hand is the transfer by agreement of a subsisting leasehold from the assigner to the assignee agreement is either formal or informal we have already sufficiently considered the significance of this formal element in general there is however one formality known to the law of property which requires special notice namely the delivery of possession that traditio was an essential element of the voluntary transfer of dominium was a fundamental principle of roman law traditionibus et unscapionibus dominia rerum non nudis pactus transfer unter so in english law until the year eighteen forty five land could in theory be conveyed in no other method than by the delivery of possession no deed of conveyance was in itself of any effect it is true in practice this rule was for centuries evaded by taking advantage of that fictitious delivery of possession which was rendered possible by the statute of uses 
but it is only by virtue of a modern statute passed in the year mentioned that the ownership of land can in legal theory be transferred without possession of it in the case of chattels the common law itself succeeded centuries ago in cutting down to a very large extent the older principle chattels can be assigned by deed without delivery and also by sale without delivery but a gift of chattels requires to this day to be completed by the transfer of possession in this requirement of traditio we may see a curious remnant of an earlier phase of thought it is a relic of the times when the law attributed to the fact of possession a degree of importance which at the present day seems altogether disproportionate ownership seems to have been deemed little more than an accessory of possession an owner who had ceased to possess had almost ceased to own for he was deprived of his most important rights a person who had not yet succeeded in obtaining possession was not an owner at all however valid his claim to the possession may have been the transfer of a thing was conceived as consisting essentially in the transfer of the possession of it the transfer of rights apart from the visible transfer of things had not yet been thought of so far as the requirement of traditio is still justifiably retained by the law it is to be regarded as a formality accessory to the agreement and serving the same purposes as other formalities it supplies evidence of the agreement and it preserves for the parties a locus poenitentiae lest they be prematurely bound by unconsidered consent it is a leading principle of law that the title of a grantee or assignee cannot be better than that of his grantor or signer nemo plus juris ad alium transferi potest quam ipsa haberet no man can transfer or encumber a right which is not his to this rule however there is a considerable number of important exceptions the rule is ancient and most of the exceptions are modern and we may anticipate that the future course of legal development will show further derogations from the early principle there are two conflicting interests in the matter the older rule is devised for the security of established titles under its protection he who succeeds in obtaining a perfect title may sit down in peace and keep his property against all the world the exceptions on the contrary are established in the interests of those who seek to acquire property not of those who seek to keep it the easier it is to acquire a title with safety the more difficult it is to keep one in safety and the law must make a compromise between these two adverse interests the modern tendency is more and more to sacrifice the security of tenure given by the older rule to the facilities for safe and speedy acquisition and disposition given by the exceptions to it these exceptions are of two kinds one those due to the separation of legal from equitable ownership and two those due to the separation of ownership from possession we have seen already that when the legal ownership is in one man and the equitable in another the legal owner is a trustee for the equitable he holds the property on behalf of that other and not for himself and the obligation of this trusteeship is an encumbrance upon his title yet he may none the less give an unencumbered title to a third person provided that that person gives value for what he gets and has at the time no knowledge of the existence of the trust this rule is known as the equitable doctrine of purchase for value without notice no man who ignorantly and honestly purchases a defective legal title can be affected by any adverse equitable title vested in anyone else to this extent a legal owner can transfer to another more than he has himself notwithstanding the maxim nemo dat quod non habit the second class of exceptions to the general principle includes the cases in which the possession of a thing is in one person and the ownership of it in another partly by the common law and partly by various modern statutes the possessor is in certain cases enabled to give a good title to one who deals with him in good faith believing him to be the owner the law allows men in these cases to act on the presumption that the possessor of a thing is the owner of it 
and he who honestly acts on this presumption will acquire a valid title in all events. The most notable example is the case of negotiable instruments. The possessor of a bank note may have no title to it. He may have found it or stolen it, but he can give a good title to anyone who takes it from him for value and in good faith. Similarly, mercantile agents, in possession of goods belonging to their principals, can effectively transfer the ownership of them, whether they are authorized thereto or not. Section 164. Inheritance. The fourth and last mode of acquisition that we need consider is inheritance. In respect of the death of their owners, all rights are divisible into two classes, being either inheritable or uninheritable. A right is inheritable if it survives its owner, uninheritable if it dies with him. This division is to a large extent, though far from completely, coincident with that between proprietary and personal rights. The latter are in almost all cases so intimately connected with the personality of him in whom they are vested that they are incapable of separate and continued existence. They are not merely divested by death, as are rights of every sort, but are wholly extinguished. In exceptional cases, however, this is not so. Some personal rights are inheritable, just as property is, an instance being the status of hereditary nobility and the political and other privileges accessory thereto. Proprietary rights, on the other hand, are usually inheritable. In respect of them, death is a divestiture, but not an extinctive fact. The exceptions, however, are numerous. A lease may be for the life of the lessee instead of for a fixed term of years. Joint ownership is such that the right of him who dies first is wholly destroyed, the survivor acquiring an exclusive title by the jus accrescendi or right of survivorship. Rights of action for a tort die with the person wronged, except so far as the rule of the common law has been altered by statute. In the great majority of cases, however, death destroys merely the ownership of a proprietary right and not the right itself. The rights which a dead man thus leaves behind him vest in his representative. They pass to some person whom the dead man, or the law on his behalf, has appointed to represent him in the world of the living. This representative bears the person of the deceased, and therefore has vested in him all the inheritable rights, and has imposed upon him all the inheritable liabilities of the deceased. Inheritance is, in some sort, a legal and fictitious continuation of the personality of the dead man, for the representative is in some sort identified by the law with him whom he represents. The rights which the dead man can no longer own or exercise in propria persona, and the obligations which he can no longer in propria persona fulfill, he owns, exercises, and fulfills in the person of a living substitute. To this extent, and in this fashion, it may be said that the legal personality of a man survives his natural personality, until, his obligations being duly performed, and his property duly disposed of, his representation among the living is no longer called for. The representative of a dead man, though the property of the deceased is vested in him, is not necessarily the beneficial owner of it. He holds it on behalf of two classes of persons, among whom he himself may or may not be numbered. These are the creditors and the beneficiaries of the estate. Just as many of a man's rights survive him, so also do many of his liabilities, and these inheritable obligations pass to his representative and must be satisfied by him. Being, however, merely the representative of another, he is not liable in propria persona, and his responsibility is limited by the amount of the property which he has acquired from the deceased. He possesses a double personality or capacity, and that which is due from him in right of his executorship cannot be recovered from him in his own right. The beneficiaries who are entitled to the residue after satisfaction of the creditors are of two classes. One, those nominated by the last will of the deceased, 
and two those appointed by the law in default of any such nomination the succession of the former is testamentary ex testamento that of the latter is intestate ab intestato as to the latter there is nothing that need be here said save that the law is chiefly guided by the presumed desires of the dead man and confers the estate upon his relatives in order of proximity in default of any known relatives the property of an intestate is claimed by the state itself and goes as bona vacantia to the crown testamentary succession on the other hand demands further consideration although a dead man has no rights a man while yet alive has the right to determine the disposition after he is dead of the property which he leaves behind him his last will duly declared in the document which we significantly call by that name is held inviolable by the law for half a century and more the rights and responsibilities of living men may thus be determined by an instrument which was of no effect until the author of it was in his grave and had no longer any concern with the world or its affairs this power of the dead hand mortua manus is so familiar a feature in the law that we accept it as a matter of course and have some difficulty in realizing what a very singular phenomenon it in reality is it is clear that some limitation must be imposed by the law upon this power of the dead over the living and these restrictions are of three chief kinds one limitations of time it is only during a limited period after his death that the directions of a testator as to the disposition of his property are held valid he must so order the destination of his estate that within this period the whole of it shall become vested absolutely in some one or more persons free from all testamentary conditions and restrictions any attempt to retain the property in manu mortua beyond that time limit makes the testamentary disposition of it void in english law the period is determined by a set of elaborate rules which we need not here consider two limitation of amount a second limitation of testamentary power imposed by most legal systems though not by our own is that a testator can deal with a certain proportion of his estate only the residue being allotted by the law to those to whom he owes a duty of support namely his wife and children three limitations of purpose the power of testamentary dispositions is given to a man that he may use it for the benefit of other men who survive him and to this end only can it be validly exercised the dead hand will not be suffered to withdraw property from the uses of the living no man can validly direct that his land shall lie waste or that his money shall be buried with him or thrown into the sea summary divisions of the substantive civil law one law of property proprietary rights in rem two law of obligations proprietary rights in personum three law of status personal rights meanings of the term property one all legal rights two all proprietary rights three all proprietary rights in rem four rights of ownership in material things divisions of the law of property one ownership of material things corporeal property two rights in re propria in immaterial things e g patents and trademarks three rights in re aliena over material or immaterial things e g leases trusts and securities the ownership of material things its essential qualities one generality two permanence three inheritance ownership of land in english law movable and immovable property land and chattels movable and immovable rights the local situation of rights real and personal property meaning of the term chattel rights in re propria in immaterial things one patents 
two literary copyright three artistic copyright four musical and dramatic copyright five goodwill trademarks and trade names encumbrances over property one leases their nature their subject matter their duration two servitudes their nature their kinds public and private appurtenant and in gross three securities their nature mortgages and liens the essential nature of a mortgage equities of redemption mortgages by way of assignment by way of encumbrance the double ownership of mortgaged property the reduction of mortgages to liens the kinds of liens modes of acquiring property one possession absolute title to res nilius absolute ownership relative title to res aliana possessory ownership two prescription positive or acquisitive negative or extinctive rational basis of prescription presumption of coincidence of possession and ownership classes of rights subject to prescription prescription perfect imperfect the limitation of actions three agreement assignment grant formal informal the efficacy of agreement nemo debt quad non habit exceptions separation of legal and equitable ownership separation of ownership and possession four inheritance rights inheritable uninheritable the representatives of dead men the creditors of dead men the beneficiaries of dead men one ab intestato two ex testamento the limits of testamentary power end of section thirty one